Today on Foodstuffs. Jess tracks down a popular yet elusive food Instagrammer who only recently gave up their true identity. Then Brian connects with an Israeli-born chef who has had to completely change the way he employs his classic culinary training to fit his new traditional beliefs. The hashtags are also important, though. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> hashtag who knew? Hashtag soigne. Hashtag the art of plating. Hashtag four magazine. Hashtag chef life. Hashtag cheese bits. Hashtag lactose intolerance is actually not funny. <laughs> hashtag sausage fries. Like, I want this taste again. I know I can achieve it like in a different way or get something 10 times better. It's always the same or better. You can go under. My name is Karav Lama. We are here at my restaurant, Tupac Kitchen, in a cocktail in Toronto. And you're listening to The Food Stuff. Welcome to season two of Food Stuffs. Our podcast about food and culture. And their intersections. I'm Brian Goman. And I'm Jessica Walker. Welcome back, Ryan. Thanks, you too. <laughs> How have you been? I've been splendid, terrific, wonderful. You better be. You have some pretty incredible things going on. I do. I do. Namely? Well, uh, Simmel, my wife, is pregnant with child. Congratulations. So that's happening. Very exciting. Yes. I know. You guys should just have to hurry up now because I want to hang out with a baby. Well, we we can only rush this process so much, (laughs) Jess. I really don't want you to rush it. Don't rush. It's okay. Um, That is very, very, very good news. Yes. Thank you. We're really excited. Very Um, excited. What about you? What's up with you? Oh, not much. Um, I did get to go to Buffalo, which I love. Thank you very much. But yeah, I was just holding down the fort, basically. Well, that sounds super exciting, and I'd love to talk about it. (laughs) But I really think that we should jump into our first... Uh, interview. I know you're really hey. excited about this one. So tell me about it. Okay. I am very excited. Uh, basically for the last year or so, I've been following an Instagram account called at Chef Jacques Lemaire. Um, it was clearly a satirical account where this man, Chef Jacques Lemaire, did not work at a real restaurant. Um, but you can imagine for the last year or so getting off work when you're uh, finished an eight hour shift and you've been offline for that length of time and everyone around you is kind of going through their social media and then you hear this little rash of like cackles around the bar um, as everyone's coming across this picture from Chef Jacques Lemaire, which is, I'll just set this home, essentially you're getting a photo of a plate with each of these posts that is kind of classic food porn where it's a bare plate except for this teeny tiny little dish in the corner with, in this case, um, where you're used to seeing like a uh, onion consomme gel or like a, yeah, these little microgreens or a coffee uh, cocoa nib uh, crumble or whatever. In this case, this person has chose to p- chosen to plate with like a Mountain Dew foam or what? a Cheez-Its crumble or right. <laughs> like some pigs in a blanket or all these trashy, that's my word, foods um, that we all love, but are, you don't really think of, uh, not exactly synonymous with fine dining. And this style of plating normally goes a little more hand in hand with that. So anyway, um, I have been curious in more recent times as to who on earth is doing this and who is so funny to not only plate these dishes, but then also write these amazing kind of stories of their day to go along with it. So Chef Jacques Lemaire will tell you his spec or his special for the night, but before that he'll give you a little insight into how his day uh, led him to that plate, Um, such as, you know, a food order showing up late or... 
um, getting stuck in the walk-in or, you know, like a dish completely uh, exploding on them and, you know, rising above it. And nonetheless, here we have beer special for the night. So lots of laughs. It is a little bit industry specific, um, which is what feels kind of great about it as someone in the industry. Then um, about a month ago, I kind of reached out because... Chef Jacques Lemaire was doing a terroir takeover. Terroir is a symposium or a conference that happens here every April in Toronto. And um, I reached out through at Foodstuff's Life and they were gracious enough to respond. Um, And then when I, that sort of planted the seed of, I need to figure out who this person is. And uh, and sure enough, they had just come out and drum roll, dun 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 dun. It is not... A man, Chef Jacques Lemaire. It is a woman. Her name is <laughs> dun, dun, dun. her name is Christine Flynn. And not only is it a woman, um, they live in Toronto. She lives in Toronto. Um, she is the executive chef of IQ Food Company. But um, yeah, she was incredibly gracious. She actually invited me over to her house to hang out with her and her two puppies, Lucy and Rocky. You might or might not hear them in this tape. Um, but yeah, lots of, uh, yeah, lots of good times. We shared a beer and, and, um, and got into it. So I feel like we should probably get into it, get into it. So let's, let's get into it. This is Jess mm-hmm. with Christine Flynn, AKA chef Jacques Lamert. Oui. Um, well, yeah, I mean, basically I take ingredients you could get at a gas station <laughs> Um, or, you know, on the bottom shelf of the grocery store. And, you know, it's I kind of reconfigure them. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes I manipulate them and make, like, gels or foams or whatever. But I plate them like the food you would get at a very high fine dining, like high-end fine dining restaurant. Lots of negative space. So much negative space. <laughs> and, like, everything tweezered. Yes. Um, because bottom shelf and then microgreens. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> But what's really funny is that some of the plates are, are quite bad, you know? I mean, I don't think that they look good. But the whole idea is this, this chef really doesn't know what he's doing. Right. You know, he's constantly making a fool of himself. <laughs> but with, like, the best attitude ever. So some of the plates, like... I'm like, they look terrible. And, but he's like so proud. Yeah. And he's so like happy. And he's overcome a lot during the day to make this spec yeah. happen. Yeah. yeah. Like exploding lobster tanks, <laughs> you know, you know, deliveries gone awry. Showing up mid service. Yeah. People all. no call, no show. Yeah. All, all kinds of things, you know. Yeah. For sure. But um, yeah, so since you've come out, there's a lot of impressions that are coming through in some of the articles that I've been reading or, or whatever that give it a political bent to it or that like, yeah, you're female. This is a commentary on bro culture. Mm-hmm. Like, do you identify with that stuff or not so much? I, I find that really interesting um, because like being a woman like has clearly shaped me, but it doesn't define me. Mm-hmm. And you know, I move pretty fluidly through a lot of different worlds. Yeah. And if I'm in a kitchen, like, humping it out on the line, yeah. I talk the exact same way as Jacques talks. Yeah. You know, if I'm at dinner with, like, my father and, you know, his girlfriend, like, I speak like I have a Bachelor of Arts education. Right. Yes. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, I think that I'm a bit of a chameleon, um, but I, for me, it was never about, you know, taking the mick out of bro culture because... 
I've worked in kitchens for like almost 18 years. Like all my friends are bros yeah. and I love them. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm so lucky to have these guys in my life who've mentored me and come up with me and who are collaborative with me. So yeah, I mean, people are going to, they're always going to look at things through their own lens Yeah, and they're going to say, you know, oh, she did that. So it must mean this. But in general, I mean, I guess the thing is, like, with art, you're always going to make people think different things. And that's why I don't try and editorialize it too much, because I want people to keep thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I want, you know, in my own little way to to have people maybe look at a post after service when they're having some beers and be like, huh, mm-hmm. what do you think that means? Mm-hmm. You know, that's more important than anything else. Like, if you just tell people what you think they'll just forget it yeah but if people have their own thought and their own kind of you know their own time to reflect i think that's much more powerful and i it's fascinating to hear what people think i'm doing but i continue to be described as like elusive and like quixotic and things like that but i'm just like "Eh, you know like you you figure it out like you tell me what i said and uh, that's you know very fun is there any that have kind of like captured your imagination or like was there anything particularly salient or yeah just new for you in what you've been in the communications that have come around it um you know I think for me the most meaningful thing is having young girls reach out and sort of you know tell me I'm like their shiro or (laughs) whatever I mean that's pretty amazing because I didn't have two too many female mentors when I was younger, but I also didn't know how to relate to them. Um, I didn't really understand what mentorship was. And I think when you're a young woman, um, you know, probably from the time you're like 15 to like 29, (laughs) you're constantly competing. Mm -hmm. Like young women are incredibly competitive. Like we think men are competitive. They're not Mm -hmm. like women are so, so competitive. And then you hit 29, 30, you know, whatever age I am now, and it switches and you become collaborative. And so it's so incredible for me that young women are kind of reaching out and asking me questions about what I did. And that, again, I can respond and I'm not just sort of like, oh, you know, I knocked together this stuff. Like, nope. Like I worked for free for a lot of people. I've read, I have no idea how many cookbooks, but like thousands. Mm-hmm. Um, and I volunteered. Yeah. And to be able to give that message to young people and be like, you know what, it's going to take you a lot of hard work to get where you're going. And it's not going to be a straight line. Yeah. You know, or maybe it is. I think some people are naturally superstars, but in general, most of us have to work incredibly hard to get where we are and to be able to kind of give that message to young people and at the same time say, like, it, it gets better. Um, that's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty salient. Yeah, I would say. Um, and in terms of the straight line, what could you, like, how could you have ever predicted that this would be on your line? Yeah, I, I definitely <laughs> did not see it coming. Although there was a moment and it was after I did, I did this post where I took like a McDonald's filet of fish sandwich and like broke it down <laughs> to, <laughs> to its most soigné components. <laughs> and I was over at my brother's, it was around, it was around Valentine's day, I think. And I was showing him the post and I was like, look at this. It's funny. He's like, what are you doing with your life? And I'm like, I just think it's really funny. And I think that maybe some other people might think it would be funny too. And he's like, you're insane. 
Um, and it's funny now because he's eating crow and I'm just like, <laughs> I was right, you know? Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, when I look at it from being like outside myself, like I'm really happy that I don't work in a cubicle or I just don't think I would be good at it. You know? <laughs> so it's pretty cool to just be like, no, I was right guys. Like I was, I'm much better at this. It's so interesting that like it, you your name was not attached to this account for a good year and then it still brought about like authenticity like you're like this is what has pierced through there's authenticity here there's a like well-meaning human behind this thing who wants to make light of these really serious things that we all get bogged down in and that's what I think people probably glom on to right does that yeah well and I think you again you can look at it completely superficially and be like ha you know, or you can look at it a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper. And I think that's appealing too. Like, do you just feel like a laugh today? Then just look at the surface. Mm -hmm. And you really kind of, you want to think about some things maybe a little bit deeper. Like, that's that's available to you too. It's a bit of a choose your own adventure. Mm -hmm. No, <laughs> This is another sure. solid 80s reference. <laughs> um, I use choose your own adventure all the time. Table side, so. Yeah. Yeah, I know, for sure. And I think... Um, something like this happens and not just for me but yeah I spent my whole 20s just being like I don't know what I'm doing I mm -hmm. don't know why I'm working 18 hours today I don't know why I'm like crying in the walk-in yeah <laughs> crying in the walk-in shoulder deep in a grease trap like I don't know why I'm doing this but I feel compelled and I remember listening to uh, this American Life podcast once about the guy who started The Onion yeah and how he was, like, everyone's like, you're a loser, you know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> and it took him forever. But one day he's like, I'm going to write, like, a satirical, you know, news outlet. And that was The Onion. And yeah. I always kind of felt like, maybe if I just keep working, something like that will happen to me. Uh, and I, I didn't know at the time that it would be satire, for sure. But I always felt like, you know, success, and whether it's monetary or whether it's just like a feeling of accomplishment, like it yeah. will follow. Yeah, exactly. And I guess that's what I mean by authenticity. It's like not coming from you looking for notoriety. It's coming from you getting a kick out of this thing and wanting, I don't know. Yeah, no, I have laughed harder than anyone else this year. <laughs> and yeah, I was on the phone with my mom the other night. Um, again, like a lot of stuff has happened this year that's been pretty rough. Um, and not really with work. It's actually more with personal life and... Um, I lost my grandma, which was pretty rough, and my dog passed away, and um, yeah, and I ended up separating from my husband, but, you know, through it all was this sort of, you know, things are going really badly, <laughs> but you know what, if I just stick it out, yeah. things are going to look up, and yeah. having that as sort of like the mantra of the account, like, completely changed my life. Mm-hmm. And when I was speaking to my mom the other night, she was like, I just can't believe, like, how positive you sound all the time now. And I was like, yeah, like, what would Jacques do, you know? <laughs> WWJD. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, so it's really kind of like a funny thing of, like, life imitating art. And mm -hmm. you, you put these parameters on yourself where you're like, I'm not, I'm not going to dwell on, like, the stuff that's gone wrong. I'm just going to, like, you know, I'm going to crush it and, <laughs> you know, make a tight spec. Um, it really, it's, it's definitely like made my outlook a lot rosier mm -hmm. and 
so again, I think that's a little bit of the authenticity too. Cause like the worst days were the days where I would post and then, and then all of a sudden like 2000 people were like, ha ha. And then, like, it makes you feel pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I can only imagine. Yeah. That's lovely. Um, yeah. So you kind of created your own role model. Yeah. And you know, again, my own little, little world. And when I was a kid, like I grew up and I read like, you know, you can see my bookshelf, but it's like. Narnia and like Beatrix Potter and Peter Pan yeah exactly like mm-hmm. these places with like you know little worlds that didn't exist and as I got older it was like Mists of Avalon and um the Fiona Var Tapestry one of my favorite trilogies of all time okay it's Canadian sci-fi dang yeah I, I might have a copy to lend you okay um but places with like alternate universes yeah. where like everything worked out and you know as a kid I would just you know I would read to escape and then I think more recently it's like I just built this little world where everything always ends up okay yeah do you think of Jacques often like are you just like Jacques would blah when something really ridiculous or like you know like horrifyingly bad happens at work I'm like ooh <laughs> and I'll like make a note of my iPhone I'm like note to self like you know, I mean... What is a grease trap? What is a grease trap? <laughs> or like, oh, like, fridge door left open all night, like, lost $2,000 worth of chicken. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's kind of the, the, the two different ways that I'll think of him. Um, and one is as, like, you know, content for a post. But the other one is, like, you know, I need to be more positive and I need to, you know, be that affable, bumbling person who doesn't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just making snacks. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Christine. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. Yes. Okay. That was Jess with Christine Flint, aka Jacques Lemaire. That was fun. Yeah, it was fun. I know she's a wonderful human being, and she is an East Coaster, so I should expect nothing sure, less. Sure, of course. Yes. Yeah. That was really cool, and I really liked that she was talking about how just she was sort of doing it for herself, and I that. Know. I mean, I guess that's you can get to this like esoteric humor that if no one else finds it funny, it's sort of like, okay, well, what are you doing? Yeah. But if you starting with what makes you laugh yeah. and other people are also laughing, for that's sure. a good, that's a good thing. Yeah. You need a personal day to day motivation for doing these things. And when you hear the year that she was going through, what a magical prescription to give yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I'm like, how many people in my life need this and yeah. who could do it? Because it would take so much energy, but it doesn't sound like it for her. And I, well, I, think I mean, you get I lots couldn't of have material, predicted the story. Right? Yeah, as exactly. You, as, you, as you know, you get lots of oh material working yeah. in a restaurant, right? For sure. Like if she was only a manager managing a kitchen, there would be material for days. But then the added element of, um, yeah, just trying to keep a level head and and laugh through it is is even more so big big thanks to Christine for for hanging out with us and then she's um got some interesting projects and irons in the fire for the future and we'll certainly keep everyone posted on all of that indeed for season two we had to do something new and you know push ourselves in a new way so we decided to um get some games on the go yeah a little getting to know you if you will um so here's week one of what i will be calling games with brian oh come on that's not the name (laughs) i mean it's true for me and me alone it's games with jessica and brian okay okay let's play 
All right. So I, for installment one, I thought we would kick things off with an old favorite. Would you rather? All right. Okay. So I like it. Yeah. I actually put a call out to some friends for some insight and, uh, and I think we got some good ones here. So the first one, which I think is relevant to our previous interview, is would you rather A, be a chef and make $15 an hour, or B, be a dishwasher and make $30 an hour? How, how, long, how long do I have to do these jobs? Is this, this like is your indefinite? Life. This is your life. Okay, I guess I'd be a chef then. Yeah. I mean... Is that obvious? Well, I think so. If it was like a year yes. or six months, give me the money. Yeah. I respect it wholly, but it, everyone is not built for it. And everyone does have an expiry date. And for those who can last is actually, it's a miracle. And there's an art to it. There really is. Um, Question I, two. Okay. <laughs> you don't want to talk about dishwashing anymore. All right. Do you prefer soft foods or crunchy foods? Oh wow! Texture is such a big thing. I, know. I like both a lot. If I, it was like okay, so let's let's do it in to, the true would you rather yeah, style. Say, yeah. Would you rather for the rest of your life eat soft foods or crunchy foods? Wow, that's tough, right? Because my immediate my gut reaction is crunchy, yeah. right? That's it's just a more fun texture. Yeah, but. The, there's a danger aspect to it, yeah, right? You yeah. cut the top of your mouth, yeah. right? You just, your jaw gets tired, Things right? are going to get stuck in your teeth a lot more. But it is a lot more satisfying. I agree. It's, well, when she asked it, I was just taking a, taking it back at the question because who doesn't want crunchy food over soft food? But the answer for that four-year-old girl was soft food. I was like, who is this kid? Well, I can understand it. But I think I would go nuts. <laughs> I, give me the crunchy food. <laughs> All right. Question three. Question three. This one comes from my friend Ryan. Would you, for the rest of your life, prefer food that is slightly undercooked or slightly overcooked? Undercooked. You would rather undercooked than overcooked? I think so. I think because there's more flavor. You can get used to it. Overcooked, it's not like it's not something that grows on you. Underco I, undercooked always, grows on you. I was the kid who like preferred burnt toast, you know, not crazy burnt toast, but like a little burnt toast. So I think I'd go overcooked. Yeah, how come you're not answering any of these? I mean, because sometimes I guess you're you need to reciprocate. It's games with Brian. Didn't you hear? So that's Would You Rather. Dun, 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 dun. We need a theme song to that. We're going to play other games this, this year, including, uh, well, more Would You Rather, for sure. Uh, things that we're not going to talk about. That's another game. <laughs> things that we'll never talk about on the podcast. Uh, will You Eat This? Will You Eat This? Okay. <clears throat> dun, da, da, da. Would You Rather with Brian and Jels? All right. So for our next piece, Brian, you met with a man by the name of Aaron Marome. Is that correct? That is Craft Chef Aran Marom, who is currently one of the partners at the Mobius Mobius Culinary. Labs. I think it's Mobius, but please correct us if you're wrong. Here in Toronto, uh, former owner of Marom Bistro, uh, which was sort of a French-style kosher restaurant. Okay. Uh, that earned a lot of praise, and it really was a sort of a reflection of Iran's story. So Iran told me about his childhood and growing up and how food wasn't, he really thought of it as a functional 
thing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason he actually got into food was an, another sort of functional sort of reason in that he wasn't a great student. Yes, yeah, and yeah. It was sort of suggested to him, I think, by his parents that, hey, maybe you should get a trade. Like, what about cooking? <laughs> so he I think that's actually a common story. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I think so, right? Yeah. And he ended up cooking uh, in the Israeli army and then went off uh, to properly train in uh, France and went to New York and met all these different people that mm. really influenced him. And somewhere on the, along the way, he that relationship or that the way he looked at food really changed. Nice. Um, religion was the same sort of thing, where he grew up non, uh, not religious, and somewhere along the way, he really discovered that this was something that was important to him. Yeah, And that discovery also changed his relationship with food. Cool. Well, let's get into it. Um, here we have Brian speaking with Chef Aran Marom. When I went for my first dinner in France, it was like the moment when I realized, wow, this is like, this is something. Was it a, just the, that meal or that experience? Or? It, it's the attitude for eating. Um, I think that before that, I was usually just putting things into my mouth very quickly and just eating them, chewing them, and keep going what I'm doing. Even like working, you know, in the restaurants before, it was not... It never, never was like the understanding of like a meal of like flavors. It was so sophisticated, like the food that we had, the meal, the, the, the flavors. I asked, I asked the person, like, how come the onion tastes like that? What is this? He said, well, it's just been cooked for like three days almost, so that's what happened. So I said, okay, there's something to talk about here. I, I liked the complexity. I liked the, the time, like the idea that something like take so much time and produce this kind of flavor. So that, that I, I think that the moment that it hit me that like I really need to get into this. The other part of it, for sure, is to serve people. It's like one of the most incredible. Like I I love hosting. It, it's something that I just I I love so much and enjoy. You had an opportunity to go to New York. Yes. And apprentice under uh, Daniel Belou. Yes. Uh, for those who who don't know, know uh, the, the chef, can you talk about? Um, who he is and where was he at in his career at that time? For sure. Um, so we're talking about 2001. Um, Daniel, for sure. Daniel actually is from Lyon. It's from where I schooled at in France. Um, and I think he, he made a massive, a massive dent in the industry. So he was he got to be known from La Cirque. And it's the, back in the days, that was like the place of New York, mm-hmm. Manhattan. People went to La Cirque. Where were you at that? And what did you take from that experience? So I, I can definitely tell you the most dramatic moment in my life was uh, I, I had like hard time to to absorb into the system. So we had a conversation. He, he told me like he, I said with the rest of the chef. He said, Iran, like I was expecting from you, you know, more to accelerate here and like you know take leadership. And I was telling him my excuse. He got very upset. He said, Listen, we're going to have to break you down and rebuild you here. And I don't know why I got like, very offended from it and I started crying, like really crying with tears. And I thought, like, I'm willing to die in your restaurant. That's like, that sentence is carved in my head because I was really willing to die there. I was willing to do anything that needs to be done to stay work there. Um, why was it so important to you? Um, I've, I, for, for me, it was like the, the top of the mountain, uh, working in a three Michelin star restaurant. It, in France, it's like you put like a, if you don't, cook in a Michelin star restaurant, you actually don't cook. Like, you don't exist, you're just not, n- nothing. So as 
I guess it's the thing that my dad always says, like it's better to be the tail for the lions than the head to the fox. So for me, it was like just carve. I came into a very still army mentality to everything, and I was willing to sacrifice myself for the cause because it was so important. Because without that, there is no cause. There's no reason to cook. So that was New York in the sort of early 2000s, late. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then you, after that, you came to, or sometime after that, you came to Toronto. Yeah. Can you tell me about your first impressions about that, the Toronto food scene? So I actually loved it. Because one of the most amazing things is that I only experienced being in very, very fancy restaurants. And I never considered the concept in getting into like a small restaurant. Like, a little hole in the wall, like a Peruvian restaurant on St. Clair next to like a bike fixing, like a store. Yeah. You know, it's like the most amazing food ever. And I, I actually really fell in love with, with Toronto for, for everything that it is. So Toronto is also the place where you, I don't know if you would describe it this way, but you found religion. Yes. But up until this point, you were not a religious person. Not at all. What, what did you, what were your views on religion and religious people at that point. Interesting. So I, I was a very spiritual person, that's for sure. Um, I, I believe that there is like a God that's taking care of us with very little, uh, I had very little connection with him. And uh, to be honest, I, I, had, I had difficulty with religious people. I, I, I actually, I didn't even like them. I thought it's, I, I thought it's ridiculous. I thought, I was irritated with them, to be honest. It was like seeing them was like always like, this like mark, you know, like I'm religious, like in any religion, not just like, you know, not just my religion, right. like in any type of religion. So what, what, what changed that though? There was a, a family that, that you stayed with. Yes, for sure. The main thing that changed everything was kindness. It, 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 the act of kindness that I knew that specifically was motivated from a religion perspective. Not that I'm saying that people that are not religious are not kind. But I knew that this act being deliberately done because it's a religion demand. And I, th I, I thought that, that one of the most amazing things in, in the world to live by. So the kindness that they showed me was not really about me. That's, that's the best part. Um, the father of the house, for example, after like, he woke up very early, you know, he go prayer in the morning. Then he run his own business. Then he go back home. He's with his kids, and then on top of it, he go and then help other people, and that was like a daily thing. And and the wife, she go, she drop the kids like at school. She make them the lunches and everything, and then she herself go and like volunteering like in a soup kitchen. It was like, and and they only did it because they were together. It was an understanding of togetherness, and I really realized that like this is something that like I want for my life. And when I more and more I spoke with them about it, I understand that you can only accomplishing it through being in a religion and actually following laws, obeying those laws. I don't like to even call them laws because in Hebrew it's a completely different word. Right. I don't want it, it's more like deeds. And you talked about this sort of that feeling permeating into your, your work life too, mm -hmm. right? For sure. And I want to get to that, but I, I feel like we need to explain kashrut for, sure. for the people that aren't familiar, um, can you explain the concept of, of, of kashrut? I think the main, the main idea for kashrut, it's, 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 uh, it is in, in our Torah. Uh, it's been given us by God uh, through an understanding of separation and elevation of 
elements of of eating. As everybody knows, the biggest separation is between the, the meat and the dairy. Because the separation of, of meat and dairy, uh, when you become a kosher facility, you need to choose to be meat or dairy. There's no options to be both of them. You can be both of them, but the, the facilities have to be separate from each other. Because each one of his own utensils, you can use like a meat, like even like, like a normal Jewish household that is absorbing the religion will separate his dishes, will have mm-hmm pots for dairy and pots for meat. So if they're making, a, you know, for example, a steak, they're not going to use the, the, the pan that they fry something in butter. They have a different pan for meat. So in our industry, in the kosher industry, it's actually very, very simple to follow because you just you separate it. So you all have a kitchen that is a meat kitchen, right. or have a kitchen that is a dairy kitchen, and the challenge becomes much simpler. Mm-hmm. And I think I like it because it's making things much less complicated <laughs> for everyone. But I think it also creates um, different opportunities. Like you just mentioned, the steak finished with the butter. Yeah. You're going to have that. Yeah. Right? I wish. But you, but <laughs> exactly, in, 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 in most kitchens, that you would do it that way. So now, again, doing things kosher, yes. you have to do things different. So it sort of creates For sure. some new opportunities. For sure. A hundred percent. I'm trying to think of the right word to say it, but after you taste something so delicious, it's registered as a memory. Those things that register staying in, with you in your palate, so I, before I became kosher, for sure had like a very nice piece of, you know, f- yellow carotene butter on my steak. It was very hard not to. It's, it's just delicious. You can't, you can't fight it. It's delicious. Today, you know, I, I learned to live without it and uh, work on ways to find substitutes for it. But it, it is a register. It's a delicious thing. And facing this challenge was to recreate amazing flavors and, and achieve greatness on dishes with missing elements. So here came a lot of new type of chefs that I start to admire, is chefs that challenge by the area that they were cooking at. Um, if it's the, the main one would be Michel Bra in France, that he just stuck on a mountain, Gagnol, I think that's the name of the place, and he just cooked from what's in the land. Right. So I start to see with him, like, so he created this like olive oil butter, where you emulsify olive oil in, in a very low temperature um, until it became like solid and solid and solid and start tying it and tying it. And he, he got a very interesting product, the same like in here in Canada, I was exposed for the first time to maple. So I was exposed to maple butter. That was like one of the most amazing things. Of course, there's different elements of flavor, but you start to really look into ingredients and you start to really see, like I want this taste again. I know I can achieve it like in a different way or get something 10 times better. It's Or it's the same or better. You can go mm-hmm. under. Can you talk about, because I feel like part of what we're talking about now is what you're doing here with this lab. Can you talk about your culinary, your kosher culinary lab and, and what you guys are doing here? For sure. Um, so I needed to create a place, like after, uh, after I left the restaurant, I needed to create a place for me that failing is actually a part of success Um, because in the restaurant I didn't leave myself enough room for researching or trialing thing I really wanted to get things done and you have very little bit time to achieve it so fundamentally I wanted the lab to have a space where I can try things and taste them and have them with other people tying them without feeling that my ego is involved understanding and I think it affected all my life after to understand that everything in life is a process. You have to try 
You have to research. You have not to get nervous when something doesn't work or get like frustrated when it doesn't come out the way you wanted it. Because the more you'll challenge it and the more you try with it, the better it will get. So who is, um, who, what market are, are, you, are you filling here with, with the research lab? Uh -huh. um, right now, really our focus is on big industry. Like when I say big industry, I'm saying like, like on the side, like, like a big sugar really. Like we really want to find ways to innovate in the kosher industry. Today the kosher industry stand on $18 billion dollar uh, operation that have no place to go for help. They have to like innovate and accelerate in themselves constantly, what causing us to have very little product. And I'm not saying there is no product, there is amazing product. There is a, for sure a lot more than what was before. And there is a lot of great pioneers in the industry that like pushing to make it better and all over the world, you know, even Coca-Cola is kosher. You know, you can, if you look in Coke, they, they figure out the market. You should be kosher. Like, they know it. <laughs> They're like very smart people out there. Because um, I, I personally also believe, personally, that one of the reasons I picked this industry because I really think that spiritual food will be the next step of the food industry. If today it's health and organic, I really believe that people will start eating for elevating. I think our world is going to like an amazing place when it comes to food. I really love that I'm living in this time and age and seeing that happening because seeing human deciding to cons uh, like consume less protein and less animal product. I know we're going in this amazing direction. It's incredible. It's coming. It's coming here. And I also see it on my friend chefs. Like a lot of people, they, they choose new techniques. They choose to do, make things better. It's, it's not just the, the, the customer pull or, or, or the client push. It's that people actually want to make things. People are amazing, like especially here. Like I know in all the world, of course. But here, it's, it's a country of like amazing people with like a lot to give, and and I think that's that's very special about Canada. Like I think it's a sorry, I'm tying up the whole story now. <laughs> I did the whole job for you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thank you. Really All right, and that was Brian speaking with Chef Aron Marome. I have to admit that I haven't really thought so much about well, what he was just saying about the idea of spiritual food, you know? Yeah. And maybe it, that's the whole thing. Like, I wasn't thinking about organic food until that concept was introduced to me. I wasn't thinking about ethical food until that. And this is taking ethical kind of to another level. Is that right? I think so. And I, I really do think that that, when he first said it, I thought, that's interesting, but I don't know that I agree. But the more that I've sort of thought about it, I can really see where his mind is at. And I think if you look at, organic food and ethical fair trade food mm -hmm. and now what he's talking about food that sort of supports your spirituality or your religious beliefs and your moral beliefs it, right yeah it's sort of that all is a part of yeah that. it's kind of building on that idea and as someone who doesn't identify with one particular sect or one sort of religion right. i i would agree that i'm more of a spiritual person i i care a lot about those things i care a lot about other beings on the earth and um ensuring that there's stuff for the future and all that and i think that kind of folds into it yeah Maybe. so if you are I, interested I in that mm -hmm. um, you can check out uh moby's culinary labs we'll have a link uh in our social media so just look out for, for that sure. That's it. We've reached the end of another episode of Foodstuffs. Welcome back, Brian. Welcome back, Jess. Congrats on the end of episode 11. Is it episode 11? Let's call it episode 11. Okay. Season 2, episode 1, episode 11. Same, same. 
Um, so thanks this week go to Christine Flynn and to her puppies Rocky and Lucy for hanging out with me we'll be posting some of her stuff on our Instagram but be sure to follow Christine at Chef Jacques Lemaire and thanks to Ron Marone for showing me around the Mobius Culinary Labs in Yorkville as I said if you're interested you can check out the link on our Facebook to Mobius uh, and you can also go to their website MobiusCulinaryLabs.com Thanks, as always, go to Eric Betlam, Sam Petit, and Ken Stauer from CIUT for letting us back into Studio 2, our favorite place on Earth. Thanks so much, guys, and thank you to you for listening. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram, both at Foodstuff's Life, or on Facebook by searching Foodstuffs. And you can find us on the web, foodstuffs.life. I'm Brian Goldman. And I'm Jessica Walker. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.